Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to The Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Pierre Bertrand. He's an industry veteran who I met when he was leading Essilor in Canada and now works with NeuroLens. Hello, Pierre. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hey, good morning, Doc. Great to be here with you. Uh, it's a thrill to have you here. Let's jump right in. Your role is Chief Commercial Officer at NeuroLens. What does your day look like in that role? The beauty of being at a startup is every day is a different day. Um, so I can tell you right now uh, what a day looks like is um, getting ready to start shipping our second generation device. Um, our NeuroLens measurement device second generation, um, we started marketing that uh, about four weeks ago. Um, we are at uh, close to 150 pre-orders, uh, which is equivalent to the number of total sites we had when I joined about 18 months ago. So uh, the growth is just extraordinary. So it's it's a great time to be at NeuroLens. We're going to talk about the technology of NeuroLens a little bit more later, but can you give us the company's quick history? When did it start? How many customers do you have today? I mean, 150 sounds like a number that's, that's meaningful, but go ahead and give us a quick history of the company. Absolutely. So uh, the company dates back uh, about eight years. Um, and it really got started by a, an independent optometrist um, in South Dakota, um, Dr. Jeff Crawl, who uh, multi-generational uh, optometry family. And um, they had been treating eye misalignment for years and um, realized that there was a need, an unmet need in the market, and they needed to develop something, a better way to measure and then treat misalignment. And so um, fast forward to uh, about two years ago, um, I, I joined the company uh, really to help them accelerate. The, the technology was already there. I tell people all the time, I'm not smart enough to come up with the innovation. Um, they just needed a little help to, to meet independent optometry. And so we, uh, we've been on a great growth curve. Um, so you, to answer your other question, uh, we're now north of 400 sites. Um, we've just started a few months ago uh, in Canada, which is our first international market. Um, and of course, that, that means a lot to me as a Canadian uh, to, to have Canada do so well. And uh, we're really excited about the future here. Well, let's go back to your beginning in Canada. Where were you born and raised? So I was born and raised in Montreal. Um, beautiful city. If, uh, if you've ever wanted to go to Paris, uh, but you didn't want to fly across the Atlantic, uh, Montreal is a fantastic city to grow up in. Um, my parents were both high school teachers. Um, fortunate enough that my mom was a, a high school English teacher and uh, my dad realized that English was the language of opportunity. So um, throughout the, my life, um, both my parents were French speaking, but uh, we watched TV in English, uh, we read the newspaper in English, and um, all my sports teams were English speaking. So uh, that's how I got the head start. 
Wow. Uh, your dad, you said, was a real inspiration. Tell us about him. So, uh, yeah, uh, amazing man. Uh, you know, first first person to graduate high school and go to college in our family. Um, and um, so he was a high school biology teacher um, who aspired for more, right? His whole mission in life was to take our family tree um, to the next level. And um, so I uh, did two master's degrees simultaneously at night um, while, while I was uh, less than two years old. Um, and um, from there went into the private sector and um, started working in the computer industry um, with no sales background whatsoever. And um, uh, interesting, uh, you know, I, I remember a, as a child um, before he moved into the private sector, um, in the summertime, he would, he would leave to drive tour buses um, to, to raise more money. Um, and so, you know, the summers were spent with uh, my brother and I driving my mom crazy uh, while my dad drove cross country uh, with tourists. And um, that's what allowed him to make the move to the private sector. Um, and I'll, I'll always remember this because uh, he, he didn't tell us until we we're, you know, in our 30s. But um, when he was in the computer business, um, the, the business that he was with actually went bankrupt. And uh, he was unemployed for four weeks. Um, but we didn't know because he got up, put on his suit and tie, uh, went to work. Uh, and for those four weeks, going to work meant finding another job. Um, but he, he wanted to make sure that he didn't put that on our shoulders. So, um, you know, fast forward to seven years ago and, um, you know, we, we get expatriated to, to Montreal to go uh, lead Essilor Canada, which was uh, an experience of a lifetime, and um, move into a condo. Uh, along the Lachine Canal, which is a beautiful waterway just outside of Montreal, and invite my parents over. And he walks into the condo, and he looks out the windows, and he starts to cry. And uh, this, this is a man that uh, shows very little emotion. Uh, I'd only seen him cry once in my entire life before then. It was when his mother passed away. And I said, Dad, what's going on? And he said, um, when, when I was a kid my sister, brother, and I used to come along this canal um, because the coal ships would come in and out and we would collect coal um, to heat the house in the wintertime. And he said, it's so amazing to me that a generation later, um, my son is leading a large organization and living in a condo, staring down at where we used to get coal for heat. So uh, amazing, amazing man. Is he still with us? He is. He is. Um, so they're in Canada. Um, you know, the, this mom too. Mom as well. Yeah. Um, bless her heart. Uh, <laughs> she uh, she's been uh, you know in lockdown due to COVID with him for about sixteen months. So thankfully we've got FaceTime, so we can give them both a break. And uh, but yeah, fantastic parents. That's wonderful. And I'm sure they're very proud of your family. Tell us about your daughters. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so my oldest daughter, Katie, uh, 16 years old, um, uh, an amazing young lady, um, honor school student, 
um, great athlete as well. And uh, in fact, over the weekend, um, they they just won uh, their regional championships. Uh, they're going to nationals in two weeks in soccer. Um, just a, a beautiful young lady. And uh, uh, she was actually one of the first women ever to get a junior black belt in jiu-jitsu uh, under the Machado organization. So just a, a beautiful young uh, athlete and student. And then her, her younger sister, Hadley, is uh, just about to turn 13. And um, brilliant young lady as well. And, um, you know, they're my inspiration. I, I, you know, watch the you know we put we put these seeds right within our, our kids and and we hope that you know by the time they reach 16 they're really out of our hands at that point they're they're running on on the fuel that we poured into them and and uh to see the the resilience and the strength uh in in those young ladies makes me very proud gosh that's wonderful so on your original path of education you were destined to become a lawyer yeah, but you took a turn. What happened? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, um, you know, we're we're getting up there in age, so you know, some people may not remember this, but you know, uh, when I was in my junior senior year in high school, you know, the the big thing that was going on at the time was the O.J. Simpson trial, and um, you know, watching, I, and again, right, I'm going to date myself here, but. Uh, I would run home at the end of the day and, and before water polo practice at night, uh, I would have these VHS tapes recording all day and would watch hours and hours of uh, this stuff. And so I thought, gosh, you know, I, I would love to be the next Johnny Cochran, you know. And um, so wrote my LSATs, um, did fairly well in them. Um, and, and again, you know, my father, he said, you know, Far be it for me to hold you back from your dreams, but could I introduce you to some lawyers that I know? And uh, got the opportunity to speak to a few of them, and uh, they they did a really good job of dissuading me from joining the legal <laughs> profession. <laughs> they said, you know, if if the courtroom stuff and the law and order stuff that that you watch on TV is what is attracting you to the profession, uh, run away because uh, you know the bulk of it is spent by yourself. Uh, on documentation and paperwork, and um, so I decided instead to, you know, on a whim, apply to one MBA school. I figured, you know, if I don't get in, um, then I'll go to law school anyway and, and see if I can make a go of it, and uh, fortunately for me, they, they accepted me into the program, and um, it was the, the closest Canadian school to the border that you can get to, <laughs> the University of Windsor, uh, a yeah. 10 minute drive from Detroit, Michigan. And, um, you know, the goal was to get to the U.S. someday. I think back about the O.J. Simpson time as a one of those seminal moments, not like the moon landing in terms of, uh, you know, importance. Yeah. <laughs> but there was always that phrase when I was growing up, you'll, you'll remember, you always remember where you were during the moon landing. And there Absolutely. were some other things like that. But there are a lot of people who remember where they were when O.J. Simpson's white Ford Bronco was driving down the highway yeah. and being chased by helicopters. Um, and there were so many names, right? Judge Ito yeah. and uh, Marsha Clark and all these people <laughs> who became celebrities because of the television coverage. It was really a boom for news television yeah. uh, at the time. Cable was sort of starting to get distributed across the country. That's really interesting that it made you want to be a lawyer. Absolutely. Um, 
uh, I just can't help but reminisce myself. So thank you for giving me that moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it was just such a, to your point, it's such an odd time. I, I remember when the, the verdict came out and uh, I was lifeguarding. I was in the lifeguard chair indoors <laughs> and, you know, they were piping the, the court TV audio into this swim, you know, auditorium. And I mean, just amazing, amazing to think back. Yeah, it was, it was such an odd time. And, and for a family devastated to be respectful, it was not a funny time, right? But it was just such an odd experience of Americana. So yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll get back to eye care. So you've worked for um, industries other than eye care. Maybe we'll talk about those first. What are the similarities between some of the industries you've worked in and your experience in eye care? Tell us about what you've done before you got here. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you know, I started in the, the hospital industry. Uh, so for a, a company called um, Baxter International um, and then Cardinal Health. And um, really, that was, that was the way that I got to the U.S. Um, I was fortunate enough to have them um, hire me on. And, you know, you talk about, you know, uh, genericization of an industry. There's, there's no more generic segment than um, those little booties that you put on your feet when you go to the hospital or the gowns that they put over you when you get knee surgery. Or, and, and that was the first business that I worked in. And, you know, it, it was great to see because, you know, we took a, a market that was about as generic as you get and turned it into a premium segment. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about that. So yeah, basically what we did is, well, we, not me, I, I was, I was a rookie on the team. I was just watching, I, you know, but, yeah. uh, but you know, the very smart people that ran this business realized that the pain point in this category was managing inventory in hospitals. And what was challenging was that each surgeon had different gloves that they wanted to work with. They had, you know, different gowns and drapes that they liked. And so they had to keep 16, 20 different types of gloves. And so what they decided to do instead was, let's simplify. We know that Dr. Smith has eight open heart surgeries and we know exactly what Dr. Smith likes. So we created custom sterile packs. So you would order eight packs of Dr. Smith and, and so on and so on. And what transformed a generic business was we'll take all of these things, we'll put them together. And in fact, we'll even manage inventory for you. And what that did was it tripled the margin. It created 20% market share capture gains um, and a really healthy business from something that was generic. So for me, that, that's something that, you know, I've tried to carry through my entire career now. So um, from there, I moved uh, to Pfizer Animal Health, uh, which is now called Zoetis, in the veterinary industry. And to me, veterinarians, dentists, optometrists, um, they, they're so similar in so many ways. You know, they're, they're led by really, really, really smart people. I went to school for a really long time to be doctors. And one of the side effects that they may not have thought of or been prepared for 
is running a small business, right? It's, it tends to be mom and pop, individually owned and operated. Um, and the key challenges have very little to do with the clinical side of the business and a lot to do with HR management, right? Leading people, thinking about a strategy to grow and differentiate your business. Um, so it was interesting. So, you know, here I am, I come into the veterinary business, I know nothing. Um, and, you know, I'm given a portfolio, again, of generic vaccines. Um, they, could, they could be replaced or substituted by 12 others that are all cheaper than the Pfizer one. Um, and there's this little program that had been created, nothing had been done with it, that was called SelectVac. And SelectVac was basically a branding program that said, okay, um, you take your calves to market every year, um, we will market them as select vac calves and help you get more margin for it. And, you know, at first um, I thought, well, shoot, I've got these generic products and this tiny program and limited dollars. What if instead of trying to protect and defend all these vaccines, I put all my money behind the select vac program and build that up and Again, you know, you, you go through it, and what happened was tremendous market share gains, tremendous premiums and profitability, and happy customers as a result because they were making more for every select vac calf than they'd ever made before. So, um, tremendous, tremendous experience. Um, and I love the animal health industry, I, you know, um, you know, whether it was the veterinarians or the ranchers, um, again, many times multi-generational um, lifestyle and family were so important. You'd, you'd go and uh, there'd be spring vaccination season and um, you know one family would come help one, you know, the neighbor next door one weekend and then the following weekend they would go over and help them on their farm and uh, just, just beautiful. So um, always admired the, the participants in that industry um, and then one day out of the blue, I, I get a phone call and, um, it's, uh, a company that's, uh, this small French company, um, that aspires to help their independent customers grow by developing brands that are unique to them. Um, so they can defend themselves against online and retail players. And, um, and so that was Essilor and, uh, an incredible company with an amazing, ambitious mission um, to treat the, the world's largest you know, disease, which is poor vision. And um, so they, it was an ex incredible ride. It really was. Um, I, I'm so blessed for the experiences that I was given, um, both in the U.S. and then in Canada. Um, the, the greatest part of Essilor were the people that I got to meet at Essilor. Um, to me, the, the people are the heart of the business. Culture lives and dies with the people. And um, so that that is one of the key lessons that I took with me to, to Neuralens. You know, what I take from, what I take from your experiences are this hyper-focused approach um, to what the customer really wants. Yeah. And when I think about the hospital story, when I think about the veterinarian story, 
Um, it can be as simple as the, the doctor saying at the time of surgery, I want exactly these products for my process. Right. And then they are telling everybody else in the chain, figure out how to get my products in this process. And you figure it out for them. Yes. And obviously for the ranch rancher, they want optimum product price for their product. Um, but you're also thinking about creating sort of this connectedness to the customer. So you meet them where their mind is. Right. And I just had this beautiful, wonderful friend named Dave Getz who helped us with that at our software company. And I think we always tried to think about that in terms of what the optometrist really needs. Mm -hmm. And um, obviously you guys are starting to do that with NeuroLens. Yeah. And so I, I think it's, it's an important, it's a great segue. Um, the needs that the patients have um, are well documented. There mm -hmm. seems to be more and more evidence, um, various sources that digital eye strain is an issue. But dating back to the beginning of measurable eye testing, there has been the issue of eye misalignment or tendencies toward misalignment. And you guys have this technology, first and foremost, that measures it. Let's mm -hmm. talk about that. Yeah. Go go through what the technology is doing that has been done otherwise by eye doctors and their staff in other ways. Yeah. And and you, you nailed it on the head, right? I think about just last week, VSP put out this great piece of uh, patient survey um, that confirmed that over two-thirds of patients in optometry today are suffering on a daily basis from the painful symptoms of digital eye strain, right? And you can go back to the, the mid-2015s where the Vision Council raised that as, as a key issue for the industry. Um, but the, the, the big point that you made, which is so true, is that th this is not a five-year-old issue or a 15-year-old issue, right? It's been, it's been documented in the 1800s with jewelry and textile workers. Um, you know, this is not a new issue. Um, so the, the, the real issue now is that unlike the 1800s, where a very small percentage of the population suffered from asthenopia because of their, their near work for extended periods of time, we're all doing it now, right? And uh, we're all on our iPhones all day. We're all doing uh, these <laughs> types of video conferences all day. And and so the need is, is now mainstream. Um, and this industry is great, right? So um, they saw an unmet need in two thirds of the patients and they jumped forward to the solution phase and they thought, okay, there's, there's more blue light than ever. Maybe blue light is at the core of the issue, right? And so we saw uh, every major player in the industry come out with blue light reducing products um, you know, it, over 14% of the glasses sold in the U.S. now have some type of blue light reducing coating or in mass. Um, but as we're learning, um, you know, just a few months ago uh, in the American Journal of Ophthalmology, they did a, the first uh, peer-reviewed double-blinded study, uh, and the conclusions of the author was that were that you know reducing blue light did nothing to reduce the symptoms of digital eye strain. And so um, what I get excited about, what makes me jump out of bed every day is that at NeuroLens, we now have a solution. Um, and part 
of that solution is being able to accurately measure whether a candidate is symptomatic and how we can help them, right? So um, the Neuralens measurement device is the first objective, accurate, and reproducible test of misalignment. And it's the first time we've ever been able to measure central and peripheral vision at the same time in less than two minutes. And so, you know, you look at the, the best practitioners um, on average, if they were to measure the same patient 10 times, could have a spread of about three or four diopters um, in their measurement, whether uh, regardless of the type of measurement they do. Um, the measurement device that, that we've developed here at Neuralens gets down to a tenth of a diopter. Uh, so that's a really important piece is being able to accurately do it. And it's done typically in the pretest lane by a tech. So it, it relieves the optometrist of having to take that one extra measurement. Um, and then we translate that into our neural lenses um, that come in three designs, uh, single vision, office, and progressive. Um, and what's unique about these is that we've developed our designs to incorporate contoured prism um, that delivers the exact amount of prism from near to far that is needed to relieve the eye strain. Is is your measurement technology back to it for a second? Yeah. Is is it tested against those that I consider in, in my profession to be those folks that have not only the science behind their abilities, but that artistic ability to elicit from a patient the subjective commentary that often gets them honed in well, right? We we know that one millimeter of reflection difference off the cornea is 22 prism doctors of deviation difference. Correct. So, you know, there are some people who really have this capability of doing what they do without the technology. Are you, have you worked with them to kind of massage their art along with that science that you have? We have, and, and you bring up a great point, which is um, th there's the objective measurement. Um, and, and even in the very best practitioners, um, we know that it can be measured more accurately um, through our device than those practitioners can. Um, what the device cannot do today is that subjective piece, right? It's, it's the conversation of uncovering the, the symptoms. You know, how is it affecting them? Um, and, and what's been really fascinating, you know, we've now measured close to 250,000 patients um, in our technology, and each patient gives us about 10,000 data points. So I really believe that we're a big data company that sells lenses as opposed to a lens company. But um, what we've learned is that, um, you know, a small amount of phoria can create big symptoms and big painful um, challenges for the patient. Larger amounts sometimes don't. So, we, you know, we're still learning why that is, but... You know, what's been interesting along this, this journey is the discussions that we have with optometrists and academics um, that maybe consider, okay, PRISM is for, you know, diplopia and, and really extreme double vision cases. Um, we can deliver an, a life-changing amount of relief 
for somebody that probably wouldn't have even been detected uh, in traditional methods. And, you know, to the audience, this isn't an advertorial, yeah. right? Pierre and I are colleagues talking about something that's an emerging tech. Yeah. I'm learning along with a lot of you. And so I think to myself, man, I, I'm an OD with a lot of pretest machines. I've got a lot of throughput that mm -hmm. I've got to deal with in my practice, throughput challenges, and you're bringing another one. And yeah. two minutes isn't trivial. Um, so how have you had ODs begin to think about working with you as a company and and breaking through their logical concerns? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, and what brought me to Neuralens uh, was not the technology and not to sell another thing. It was really to help change lives. You know, it, I, I think back to um, the times that I felt most fulfilled um, it was really um, hearing from patients and hearing from customers who say, gosh, whether it's a vaccine, a lens, a, a pharmaceutical product, or now Neuralens, it, it has nothing to do with selling something and everything to do with helping somebody. So um, to answer your question, uh, it, it really comes down to segmentation, right? If you, if you think about, you know, there are roughly 25,000 independent optometrists in the U.S., we know that many of them, the majority of them, um, are not a great candidate for Neuralens. Uh, we know that, you know, major retail is likely not a great uh, partner for Neuralens. That's why we focused on independent optometry and a subset of independent optometry. So those that do well with Neuralens have made a conscious choice to put patient welfare and well-being ahead of volume. So um, that's where we do well. Uh, we typically see that optometrists that are great with Neuralens are willing to spend an hour fitting ortho-K lenses. Um, you know, they're, they're typically not doing 12-minute exams, they're doing 20 or 30-minute exams. And what we've seen coming out of COVID uh, for our business uh, is a real acceleration because I, I think it gave our industry an opportunity to, to take a breath and, and ask themselves a really important question, which is, why did I go into optometry in the first place? You know, was it to see, you know, as many patients as I can in a day, you know, to rush them through from 12 minutes and, and squeeze 17 seconds with them? Or was it really to help them? Um, and for us, it, it, I, that post-COVID space, even now, has been tremendous because of that, that question. It seems like an incredible opportunity for optometry to then refer to other optometrists. If you're saying a minority is really the target, mm -hmm. uh, then what I see is an optometrist who's choosing to dig a little deeper on mm -hmm. some issue than another. And frankly, there are some who, to your point, do long eye exams, but it's for a completely different reason. It might yeah. be a disease state management, medical management of some other condition. Um, and so I would encourage Neuralens to make sure that optometrists talk to their colleagues yeah. about when they implement this, because we get too little of that. Yeah. And it feels like a way for a doctor to sort of set themselves apart in the future. How, how do you recommend doctors deal with the future and, and the, the challenges upon them 
is is it differentiation because of technology or is it differentiation because of how they approach the patient i think those mm -hmm. might be they, they may be they're not mutually exclusive but they're not the same you're absolutely right um you know the the word differentiation to me has been uh overused uh not just in optometry but in in every category and you know, what i really believe is differentiation is uniqueness right and what makes your practice unique uh, you know i think back again to my, my time in the veterinary industry and you know in the late 90s you know their big pressure point was pet meds right so pet meds was coming out and you could get any product that you could get from your veterinarian typically for less money and i, I remember my veterinarian customers saying gosh what am i going to do you know all of my profit is in my vaccine fridge is on my shelves giving them free and tick control and they can get all of that stuff for a third of what i'm selling it for and and i said well you know quite humbly i think your business model is wrong right what is unique about your practice is your professional service it's your recommendation and that's where you should put the weight not in the product and you know if fast forward now you know 20 some odd years we're, we're having the same challenges in optometry and so um when we talk about you know neurolens or you can talk about you know other segments be it dry eye be it you know ortho k myopia control um it, it's really about what makes you unique in the marketplace and you know, you, you talked about optometrists referring to other optometrists, and we do see that. Um, what gets me excited is a world in which three to five years from now, optometry is getting referrals from neurologists, getting referrals from primary care doctors who are saying, gosh, this patient is presenting with migraines and headaches and they're on their second or third drug and they're still not coming out okay i've heard of neurolens let's try that and you know in fact if you if you go back to the very beginning of this business neurolens was going to be a head uh, dispensed through headache centers so uh, the the business model at that point was let's put a bunch of neurologists together with an optometrist in that office and we, we will use Neuralens as a solution to patients that are suffering from migraines if they're candidates. And what we quickly realized was a better model was making optometry the champion um, because that's where these patients were presenting. But I think, you know, three, five years from now, um, I want optometry to own headaches. Um, and that's what gets me really excited. I, I wanna amplify what you said about differentiation. It's not, I've put in a bunch of technology, so I now am differentiated. Right. Um, it's, it's a mindset and it's an approach. And frankly, as much as I love my colleagues in independent optometry who may specialize in deep patient satisfaction, I'm incredibly satisfied with my colleagues who take care of a lot of patients to the level that they choose to take care of them. Because when they see 
10 in the morning and maybe I saw eight or four, mm -hmm. um, the reality is, is that they're seeing patients. And sometimes patients who otherwise wouldn't be seen or didn't have the ability to pay for something else. Mm -hmm. And what I do is trust optometrists of every type and every license to do what's best for the patient. Sometimes it's see and refer these things again. So, you know, finding somebody who does something you don't is the beauty of whatever differentiated position you take. So thanks for emphasizing that and allowing me to add on. Yeah. I, I guess I'd finish with this. You've been skydiving and <laughs> I've never done that. And it scares the dickens out of me. What did you learn about yourself when you did it? You know, it's it's uh, it's funny. Um, but I, I think back as a child, you know, we all go through this in life where um, we're uncomfortable or scared of something. And, okay. uh, you know, again, I, I, I go back to, you know, my my mentor in life, my father, and uh, he, he had a great saying. He said, nothing extraordinary has ever been accomplished through ordinary effort. And the biggest source of failure is fear. And so I, I kind of embraced that, you know, as a, as a kid, I, I had a fear of heights and um, I hated going and walking those, those, those stairs up to the high diving board. You know, I'd, I'd get nervous. And um, so when I got to adult age, I said, you know what, we're gonna fix this and um, signed up for skydiving and went out the first time uh, and it was too windy. Um, so they couldn't take us up and there was about you know 14 of us that day. So we came back the next day and of the 14, I think there was five that showed up on the second day because they, they'd looked at the plane and they'd figured out that you know humans stuffed the parachute in there and you know who knows what kind of day that person was having. But, um, so the five of us went up in this, this single prop plane and they opened the door and two of them came back down with the plane. Uh, three of us jumped out. And um, what, what an amazing, if you haven't done it, Scott, I, I, I would encourage you um, because it's, it's amazing. So the, the free fall only lasts about 60 seconds. Um, and I did a free fall as opposed to a static line that pulls the chute for you right away because I wanted to feel that. And the, the, it's so loud. The wind whizzing by your ears is so loud that you can't hear yourself screaming, which is probably for the best. Um, but then the second you pull the chute, everything stops. And it's perfect calm and silence. And you know, that two or three minute glide that you have is just exhilarating. So um just an amazing time you know uh and then the the other one that you know i'd always worried about growing up was you know gosh does does getting punched hurt um you know <laughs> and and walking down an alley dark dark alley at night and you get the that scared tingly feeling and um so i decided to to take jujitsu and mixed martial arts and um done that for years. Um, and again, what, what a gift. Uh, I, I now uh, no longer um, fear um, any situation I, I'm pretty confident I can get myself out of. And, uh, you know, it, it, and, and I've, it's a gift that I've given my daughters. And um, I, I've seen the, the change that it's made in them. So, um, you know, fear, 
fear makes more people miss opportunities than failure does. Um, you, you can fail, get back up, and try it again. Um, you know, I, I was reading just last night on the plane that um, the, the story of the Apple Watch, and if you, if you haven't read that, it's, it's a great story because when the Apple Watch first got launched, um, people thought it had flopped. They, they thought, wow, you know, nobody wants that technology. Um, but they kept at it and they realized that um, the, the fitness aspects were more important than the aesthetics of it. Um, and it now outsells, you know, the entire Swiss industry uh, two to one. It, it has crushed the incumbent in Fitbit. Um, so it's really about continuing to move forward. Uh, even when you fall down and you scrape your knee and, and really that that is the foundation of success in life Very very inspiring words folks. This is why I've wanted to have Pierre on sandbox stories Pierre, I really appreciate your time and thank you for motivating us to get calm mind and body and to let our uh, our fears not stop us Thanks for joining Sandbox Stories. I uh, appreciate it, Scott. Look forward to doing it again. Awesome. Yeah, I can't wait for a catch-up story in the future. <laughs> um, and to the audience, thanks for hanging in there and listening to this entire story. Until my next Sandbox Story, be great at all you do.